Hello, Michael. Hello, Jonathan. How's it going? Yes, not bad. Well, so... That's a standard answer, that. How's it going? It's going all right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's... I don't like it when people say, how are you? No, I don't. I I just inclined not to answer. And I sometimes feel like saying, do you really give a shit? I I think it's a really poor, bad way for people to try and step into rapport. I particularly dislike it when I walk into a retail outlet. You know me, Jonathan, only goes to cheap places. Mrs. Price goes to expensive places. Yeah. And the person I'm amazed you walk into a retail outlet. Well, I don't. I go with my wife and kids. Yeah. And the person will go, how are you? And I feel like saying, you don't care. You don't really care. You don't care after my welfare. No. Anyway. Welcome to IRC Book Club. Number, as I say, every week, I never quite know, but we're well into the 30s. We are currently talking about Eat Their Lunch by Anthony, and I now know how to pronounce the surname. Ian Arino. No. <laughs> Anarino. Uh, and... Uh, we did actually record the final episode of this at the weekend and Anthony came on the show. Um, I can't wait for everybody to hear it because I think it was great content. For I thought me, he was a top guy, actually. A, he was a top guy. B, I thought the discussion was excellent and lively and fascinating. Yes, um, I agree with that. I thought he's an interesting man as a, well. A very absorbing and very knowledgeable man about the world of business and selling. Uh, and I do hope our listeners make sure that they are, A, sticking with the book, but B, for God's sake, hang in there for that episode. It's going to be great. Before we start, if you like what you're listening to, do us a favour, hit the like button, hit the share button, push out the content for us, let us know that it's worth doing. You're not going to get into trouble because you've liked something a recruitment consultant's put up on LinkedIn. Um, so we've done the first six chapters. And just to be clear, let's recap on this. This book is about uh, winning competitive business when you're in a Me Too market. As yes. Anna Reno describes it. Yes. It's about, yeah. So the, the, to, a quick recap is the book is called Eat Their Lunch. And it's about taking business off your competitors in what I think he refers to as the red space, doesn't he? The red ocean. The red ocean. Where you're competing against people whose product or solution is similar to your own. Yeah, not that Whereas a zero-sum game, i.e. they lose, you win. Yeah, which I think is a very important and timely conversation topic for a yes. lot of salespeople. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of great stuff in here. So chapter seven is called Building Consensus Horizontally and Vertically. It is. You're looking, to, to, looking at me for some input. So what this is talking about... I am is that sales pitch and when you've got different decision makers involved uh, in the process to get your thing signed off and actually the interrelationship between the between those people. That was interesting actually with this, Jonathan, is when I read this, I didn't like like it really. Really? Yeah. Because? And, uh, because I think it's been said better by other people other than one particular part of it. If I'm boring you and you need to text I'm not, somebody, I'm just, just turning let me my know. phone off so that we're not <laughs> disrupted by my multiple clients. Right, Okay. <laughs> But then, and but if then, you are a client, I'm really sorry I just said that about you. <laughs> <laughs> but then, actually, as I said to Anna Reno at the weekend, the more I thought about what he put in the chapter, the more I liked it. And you know what? I, I might read it again because I read it once, didn't really like it. But then, the more it it, it 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 was in my mind, the more I actually liked it. And you know, there's I, you can start if you want, or I can pick out so the bits what, that I like. What we've but, got in chapter seven 
is a breakdown of a fairly solid methodology for managing what in reality is a multiple stakeholder based sale. Yes. Um, and it, it's broken down. The first thing that he talks about and he kind of brings us back to is he talks about identifying stakeholders and the first one that he refers to, and I do think this has been really useful. And as you know, if you listen to the show, uh, every book that we've gone through on the show thus far, I've gotten a little something out of. And for me, I would say probably one of my big takeaways, this one is the, the definition of somebody that he calls the CEO of the problem. Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm going to build into my vernacular. Yeah, um, because actually, particularly in recruitment, that can be very varied. Yeah, I'm sure it's the same in every environment. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's been great. So he's talking about the first person is you've got the CEO of the problem. Um, and then he talks about the people who are responsible for making change that you're trying to uh, initiate. Um, and then what he's talking about here is the person who cares most deeply about the results you produce and is charged with making sure they are delivered is the CEO of the problem. I did actually write in my notes that I don't always agree with that. I think you would agree with it if you listened to what Anarino is saying, actually. Go on. Well, he's saying um, who is the issue, who are the issues in their business that are affecting that it's affecting the most heavily because that makes them the CEO of the problem. Yeah, the person who cares the most deeply about the results you produce and is charged so with making sure they're delivered. You, I don't get how you can disagree with that. Because I think sometimes we, yeah, maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but sometimes I think we work with people who are the people that care the most deeply about the results that we produce. They are charged with making sure that they are delivered. Yeah. But actually don't have any... So what actually, now I'm mistaking it, because often what my point is, a lot of those people that we deal with, they might be CEO of the problem, but they have so little authority. Well, they're not the authority. But yeah, and in fairness to any reader, he doesn't say that actually. And actually, as you go through the book he does point out that one of the key criteria is authority level. So you can have a CEO of a problem, but can but who can also be quite low in authority and influence. Yes, and I'll tell you the other thing that I really liked about this chapter, so he talks about different stakeholders. I've got to say, I think that his definition of different stakeholders and then relating it back to his L1 to L4... Um, Coming, yeah. Uh, the, the value matrix. statement thing. I think he does that better than Millerheimen. Well, one of the things we talked about with Anthony on Saturday was actually, I question the extent to which, because I'm from that Miller-Hyman solution selling background, and because I'm getting a bit old now, and it's ingrained in me, I wonder the extent to which I've struggled to integrate this particular chapter because I've got my own version so well, hardwired. You, you, yeah, yeah, exactly. You've, you've got your own language, haven't but you? But actually, I think if I gave this to, I don't know, my nephew, and, who's and 24... So, yeah, exactly, and said, read that versus Miller-Hyman, which would he side with? I think he'd side with this. Yes. And actually, I, I think... if you go the decision over, makers was better. So he's breaking it into... So you've got CEO of the problem, you've got the end user. Yeah. You've got what he calls ancillary stakeholders. So that's a beautiful thing, that ancillary stakeholders. He's right in that. Yeah, so end user, it's pretty obvious what an end user is. Then you've got an ancillary stakeholder. These stakeholders don't use what you sell, but it affects them in some way. Bad for the sound. <laughs> I know, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, the idea is not to hit the microphones. Um, and that, I thought, actually, he's, 
there's a little bit more to that than necessarily that you're getting out of the Miller-Hyman model there. I think so, yeah, 100%. I thought um, it was really nicely written, that, and, and a, then, good, a good way of doing it. Then, then you've got... Linking it back to the, sorry, the different the different value levels, which is, I think, chapter two or something like that, where it talks about the value that you bring to the individual stakeholders and the way in which to affect them. And he's then saying management are bothered about level three and leadership are bothered about level four. Yeah. And actually he's then building together quite a good framework, I think. The model works, it fits in. And particularly yeah, yeah. what's really interesting good. is now we've had, uh, we've both we've both finished the book actually and we've had the, the, the we've had Anthony... Uh, do the show with us for the final episode of this wave of the book um actually i've integrated it a little bit more since i've slept on it and it's making more sense for me yes and then what you've got is uh management as another layer and leadership as another layer and he makes a really great point here page one two two your insights ideas situational knowledge and deep understanding of the issues that sit at the junction between your industry and your client's industry are what makes you someone interesting enough to meet if you have deep knowledge and a point of view that provides the leadership stakeholders with something that helps them with a strategic initiative or creates one for them, you can start to shift your position from that of salesperson to trusted counsel. Um, and a lot of where he's going with this and a lot of where the book has been is about getting yourself into that place where you're bringing something to the party that the other guy doesn't in terms of opinion mm. and knowledge and an understanding of the issue at a much higher level. But, yeah, I agree with you. And as importantly, he said, this is suitable for leadership. Yeah. He said to you which, you know, who to pitch what kind of idea to. And then what he breaks it down into attributes about making the subjective objective. So there's different levels of attributes around each individual. So you've got perception of value, engagement level, and how compelled they are to change on a scale of one to five. And I actually thought, really like that. Authority was a big one for me. Where's that? So you've got of the key issues. So if you look to each type of a stakeholder, you've got perception of value, engagement level, compulsion to change, um, and authority. Yes. So that's what you were referring to earlier, isn't it? Actually? Yeah. And then what you've also got is influence and preference. So actually, Mike, when you really think about it, and I've integrated it, it's it's a really good model. It's a great model, but but first and I, time round. You find yourself reading it resistant to it. Because I'm so used to Miller-Hyman. Yeah, well, it was a voo. I think other people that read it will, will, will find the same. I think if you're 40 or over, you're going to read this and resist resist it. If you're 25 or below, you, you know, he's a great... If nobody taught you a strategic selling paradigm and they came to you with that, with your blank mind, you'd go, okay, right, I'm in. Correct, yeah. I'm and I'm not just in, I'm bang in. And yeah. I'm integrating it and you'd be using it on Monday morning. And can I point out... Um, I know what you're looking at. You're looking at the table that is created. Yeah, there are... If you When you buy the book, there are links to... And he recommends links to the worksheets. I've seen the worksheets. They're really good that come with the book. And you can get them off the website. Do. They're damn good. I, I thought, and usable. I thought this bit field. on page 127. Before you think about scoring the other stakeholders, it's good to consider the next section on influence. Influence is another form of authority and power. I just think that's very interesting, that, because you've got... You get it quite a lot in our market, actually, which is you'll have an MD, a sales director, and for some reason you just can't quite get to the bottom of what they're going to hire or why they won't talk to you because a lot of them have coaches or non-execs in the background. They're not actually decision-makers per se, but they give... Ah, you know, great example. I'm dealing with a client at the moment that's in my pipeline, and when I refer to a client in my pipeline, in this instance, it's... 
in my pipeline for us to make an engagement to then go out and try and find them somebody. Yep. Um, and I met him and I thought I'd done a great pitch. Yeah. But he has a consultant stroke coach in the background. Yes. Who is incredibly influential. And, and that's what Anarino's saying here. He's saying, actually, don't underestimate the power of influence. Now, I didn't actually ever like Game of Thrones. I only ever watched it because my wife watched it. <laughs> Varys. Correct. He was the man that had all the influence, but none of the power, but actually was one of the most powerful people in the show. He's he's the most powerful person in the show. And that's sort of what Anarino's saying. He's saying, if you put together a blue sheet or whatever Anarino's version is, you wouldn't mark Varys. I thought his name was Varys. Is it Varys? Varys, Lord Varys. Yeah, you wouldn't mark Varys has been that important, but actually, what, what, watch out. Are you going to say that? <laughs> watch out for Varys knocking about because they have a high degree of influence over yes. the output of your sale. Yes. And then he talks. Uh, he, he, so, actually, you know, there's a. Uh, it, it, when you go out and buy the book, um, you'll see there's a building consensus worksheet which you'll be able to download as, as, as an I like that. I thought that was great because basically it provides a summary of the different people in it. Yeah, so what you've got at the top is stakeholder, title, role, uh, present level of value, goal level of value, preference, engagement, compelling reason to change level, authority and influence. Do you know what? If you did that with every deal... You'd win a lot. You'd, you'd win more than not doing it. I think, A, you'd win a few more, and B, you'd qualify out of a few crap ones pretty quick. Yeah, 100%. It, 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 and actually, particularly if you look at the kind of people we work with, Mike, who are working on big-ticket deals often, yes. they're not working that many opportunities that you couldn't do that with every deal. Correct, yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Um, and then he actually, what he does is he sort of takes you through the worksheet. So I, I, I did like that, actually. Um, and... You can download all these worksheets, which is really useful. Um, I, I'm going to come back to something on that in a minute. And then in, in chapter eight, he talks about what he calls finding a path to a deal. Well, I put this, I mean, I do agree that each sale has its own path. What do you reckon? Each sale has its own path. Interesting, because I met a client last week. Return my call, by the way, damn you. Um, and in the meeting... What came out of it was how emphatic they were that they had a sales process. Oh, what they would then imprint up on their prospects? That if you follow our sales process, you'll be okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and it was all about, the, the meeting was all about our process, our process, our process, our process. And I actually, I probably, with hindsight, I wish I'd been a bit more challenging and said, well, what about the customer's process? Mm, yes, interesting. What about the natural process of the deal? Um, but he was emphatic. You follow our process, we'll win deals. And fair play to the guy. Actually, his business turns over about 15 million. And actually, he sold it, bought it back, sold it and bought it back. So he's probably got a few quid. He's a lot more wealthier than I am. Mm. So the path to a deal, I think every deal does have its path, but I do think some of those... I think every deal has a path, and some of those paths don't follow the grooved path that others have walked on, but more often than not, most deals follow a path. Yes, they do, yeah. They do. Whether that's the sale of recruitment services or the sale of software, there's a there's a path. And I actually, I think one of the things that our clients pay for when they hire an experienced sales guy is that this guy knows what the paths look like. They do. I think actually what they pay us for is to find people who walk a similar path. Yes. In a similar way. Be it very regimented or be it very fluid. Um, 
Uh, you know, chapter eight then. So if we just talk about there's an interesting eight, bit here, it, which is about finding a path to it. I wasn't 100 sold on all of it. I must say. So there's an interesting bit here. He talks about one of the challenges that may come on the back of creating a compelling case for changes that can cause your dream client to look at options outside of you and your company, even initiating an RFP. I've had that the other week. So I've done a brilliant number on this client. It's all gone absolutely great. Um, and the fact that I've got them thinking about their sales recruitment methodology process systems has opened them up to running a beauty parade of recruitment recruitment companies. That's your fault, isn't it? Of course it's my fault, yeah. I've dropped the ball somewhere. But I did notice that. I think sometimes you can do a great job, particularly when you're challenging thinking. I think you can sometimes open a Pandora's box. Depends what you're defining as a great job, doesn't it? Because actually... Because we have this debate, you and I, a lot about recruitment. A lot of the recruiters just get a CV and send it out. Yeah, of course they do. So they don't do a, they don't do a good job, but a lot of them have got plenty of cash. Yeah. So their employers would say, well, what's your problem? It does a good job for me, it's your target. Yeah. But I guess then it's a good job for who and what's the long-term benefit in that? And that's where a lot of these sales books yeah, I'm, correct. walk a fine line, don't they? Do you just give the people what they want, which is a big pile of CVs? Or do you challenge their way of thinking because you know you've got a better way around it? And that's the topic that this debates, really. Yeah, so what he's talking about are different things that can sometimes impinge ways to the deal. Really great. Um, and it's a, it's a good chapter. There's, what have I put here? Here you go. The thing that bothered me in chapter eight, Mike, so he talks a lot about moving forward with without necessary stakeholders. Can you do it? So what he's talking about, for example, is he's... Uh, yeah, are you on page 139 when you're your own worst Yeah, enemy? so you've got different issues. One, your stakeholders disagree on the solution, and it gives you a few ideas of how to do that. Then he talks about examples on how your stakeholders disagree on the process, and that can be a real impediment. Actually, they don't agree on the procurement process itself. Mm. And then he talks about moving forward without necessary stakeholders, and he gives you a little bit of a tip uh, around that and he talks about for example the desire to have the deal now is another reason why salespeople try to move forward without the people who make up the buying committee formal or informal actually I think that's an issue with the more modern a lot of candidates we meet I, I'm finding now a lot of people don't want and are, are struggling particularly younger candidates with the concept of a lengthy strategic sale well, the SaaS software model dumbs the sales process down a little yes. bit, doesn't it, with its puppy I think it's sale. changed the nature of selling itself. And so what I, I don't know I'm finding sometimes is I'm speaking to candidates and I'll say, typical sales cycles, 18 months to 24 months. And they're like, you what? Yeah, I know what you mean. Whereas when I first started in recruitment, working big, complex, strategic deals was the holy grail of selling. And I don't think it is anymore. This is a longer conversation we've got for this book, actually, because it's yeah. a very philosophical conversation, really. Yeah, okay. He, he puts here, on page 139, he says, trying to push a deal forward without bringing in all the people who need to say yes to your deal will cause them to pull on the reins, slow things down, resist change, and eventually try to kill the initiative. And he's, he almost has this sort of internal battle as you read the page, which is, do we crack on without some people in the decision-making process and, and try and get it closed? Or are they going to crop up anyway, so we may as well bring them in and see if they want to object? And there's a different time and a place in different situations. Which then he says... It's more fluid than that. Because in some deals, you can win the battle. You know, how many times have you and I done it where we've won the battle and lost the war? Well, you can see it happen in both ways, can't you? Sometimes, you know, you get a placement with a client and then, you know, some external recruiting party gets involved and you never speak to them again. 
Whereas I've got another client who you know very well, which is, you know, who's my best contact within that account was chief exec. Yeah. And actually I've been forced upon the sales director with the chief exec, then done an okay job, so then I'm in there. Yeah, so you can win about, you know, and let's say you're a software salesman, you can go out, cut out some key stakeholders and probably still bring a deal over the line somewhere. Definitely, I'm sure that happens a lot. But then it's not unforgotten that... Yes, it depends what you're selling. Yeah, it depends what you're selling. Me, I'm a consensus guy. It's not so much that with you, actually. What you are is a person who never glosses over anything. Yeah. Be it to your detriment or your success, whichever way you look at it. I, I'm not, I never lie, I don't lie to myself about, because I think sometimes the other bit is sometimes people lie to themselves about decision, decision maker X, stakeholder Y, influencer Z. And I think sometimes guys pursue a deal and they know in their heart, I talk to candidates all the time and why are you looking for a job, Mr. Candidate? Well, I had this deal, it didn't quite come in. I'm under a lot of pressure now. I think it's time for me to go. If I don't go, I'm probably going to get pushed anyway. And you talk them through the deal as part of the, the interview and you can sense actually part, part of it is the pressure makes people miss stuff, doesn't it? doesn't make people miss stuff. The pressure means that people don't want to look behind the door where they won't look like what they see. Yes. Because they're nervous. Like that drawer in my office that's full of old cables. It's not like that. It's like the drawer in your office, metaphorically, that's got your old credit card statements in it. <laughs> But you know what I mean, where you look yeah. at it and you think, no, oh, I want to keep going out spending big. And I know if I look in that drawer, I'll stop spending big. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking, I met a client yesterday. And, Sometimes um, people don't want the ugly truth about where they yeah, are. Yeah, I met a client yesterday and we, we did a lot of work with him and placed a lot of people with him. And I said, we've placed so many people with you now. It'd be good to know the good and bad bits of all the people that you've met so that we can refine what we're recruiting for. And I said to him, what do your best people do? And it was in no order this. And this wasn't the first thing that he said. But he said, what one of my guys does is he looks for all the problems in the account for the sale. He said it's crushing for him at times because he ends up qualifying a lot of stuff out. Yeah, because he's paranoid. But he sells a lot. Yeah, and he sat, he's literally sat there writing a list of every reason why he won't win the deal and what, yeah. he do, and what he's going to do to fix it. And that's sort of what Anarino, in a different kind of way, what this chapter is about. Respect, yeah. Who's involved? Saying, right, what's going to stop me getting who's him? Who's involved? What's going to stop it? And how do I get him on board? Yeah. That's what the chapter's about. But I'm not necessarily sure that it's perfect for me, really. Yeah, you know, um, the thing that, that and we dis- discussed this with Anthony actually on Saturday, and when you listen to the final show, this particular sequence on this book, he'll, he will explain it. I was frustrated with this chapter in as much as there's lots of talk about talking to stakeholders, identifying stakeholders, but what I didn't feel the book, where I didn't feel it led me to was, okay, you've gone to an appointment, you've pulled off a, for want of a better word, a challenger moment. Okay. Clients sat there going, holy cow, this guy thinks about the game in a totally different way. Wow, he's really got my imagination. As a result of that, you've started an engagement. Now, in and amongst that engagement, after that initial meeting, there are other stakeholders involved. What I didn't feel was that there is a segue into, well, how do I get those other... And how do you transfer that same sentiment from one point to another? How do I get that guy to becoming a champion or a coach? How do I get him to introduce me to so-and-so? Do you know what? I put at the start of my chapter, this will make you laugh, I think power-based selling does this better. Right. And and I did speak to Anthony about this on Saturday, if you recall, and he did say in his other books, 
actually... Yes, that's a very good point. He did say, and therefore I did want to make a point of it, he did say in his other books he covered that and he didn't want to waste the time. He did also say, when you're releasing a 65,000-word book, there's only so much you can put in the book. Mm, agreed. One part in How to Build Consensus, which is a subheading and then a subheading of How to Build a Consensus, is sequencing and deciding when to engage stakeholders. I think that's a crucial part of managing a complex sale. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important. And I've got to say, this subsection of the subsection covers it really well, I think. It's a weird one, because like we said before, second second read round, it makes a lot more sense. Makes a lot more sense when you've slept on it. Yeah. Yeah, it really has. You know, when you look at it and talk about it, um, and then he's talking about deciding whether to engage or avoid with obstacles, which in fairness other people talk about. Um, and, and, you know, he's very... You know, it's yeah. valid, isn't it? So what you might find is, listeners, friends, colleagues, as you get through this, you're going to be sat there going, great, it's brilliant, but how do I get access to Stakeholder X? How do I get access to Stakeholder yeah. Y? It's in the other books. And the other books are precursors to and lay, they, they are layering knowledge upon one another. And we did actually agree with Anthony, and you'll listen to the show, I'm sure, we did agree that he'd come back on and we'd talk about some of the other books, actually, Absolutely. later on in the year. And when he puts his final wrap-up on this chapter, actually, which I might be jumped a bit ahead of you, but he says, and I think this is the actual best bit of the chapter, really, which is identify the buying committee and the CEO of the problem. Yeah. If that's no, all no, you did, you, obvious thing to say, that's all you did, you're going to be all right, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, correct. Because I think all too often people trudge through sales without actually knowing who's involved. I think that happens a lot. Well, sometimes not knowing, knowing that you don't know. Yes. and But there you is know. something that surprised me that it didn't cover in influencers in this, which is I think part of the influencer uh, power in an account is your uh, opposition who's selling against you. Because if we can influence that's the client... An interest, that's an interesting take. So actually, on, you, on your... What's the sheet, what does he call the worksheet? The okay. building consensus worksheet. I would have the competitors actually, you'd and actually have, their influence. And the name of the sales guy. Correct. Because actually, if you don't know the name of the sales guy, why don't you know? Yeah, and if you, you look at that against? sales guy, he's called Bill Bloggs. Oh, look, he's from a pre-sales background. Right, I know what he's doing. Yeah. He's or, coming at it from a... Te- he's going to be technically much more astute than me. He's going to make the product look miles easier to use than I am. Correct. Because I'm turning up with a pre-sales guy. He's going to do 90% of the demo himself. Or is, or is he a general industry guy with no you know, ERP experience? Yeah. Oh, right, so he knows about the market. And I was surprised that Anarino didn't put that in influence. I think that's a really good point, Mike, is actually, you know, mm. in, the, in the deal, what's he saying? What, what's his message going to be to keep the account? Because the better guys interviewed a guy, I can't remember this week or last, it's been that, well, Tuesday, it must have been last well, week. Well, the better guys send their spies to stand outside people's training grounds, Well, they, it like? was interesting. I, I, we got into questioning, this guy's an ERP sales guy, and I don't know how we got onto it, but I said, what questions do you ask? He said, it's, he said uh, it depends who I'm competing against. And I, get, I said, right, go on. And he went, well, if I'm competing against X, I think they're going to ask that question, and I think they're going to ask that question to elicit an answer that they're going to be able to beat me at. Right. So I'm going to be mindful of the question that I asked. And, you know, the minute he said that, I thought the rest of the interview is sort of meaningless, really, because he's obviously an absolutely epic guy. And yeah. guess what? You know, his average P60 over the last 10 years is quite a million pound. Right. But that, I think, should be in here. Yeah, I think it's a very, very valid point. Chapter nine. That to Creating a preference. So where we get to now is we're in part three of the book. Part three 
is about, and I'll just give you the quick headline, much of the preference that leads to a displacement is made up of intangibles. Those things that can't easily be measured and have little to do with your product, your service, or even your company. This section will help you build those intangibles into a competitive advantage and make you someone worth leaving an existing partner for. Listeners, before you bin this, thinking, oh, this is just going to be like some big hype up, kick up the arse. It's not actually. This is one of my favourite bits of the book. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really regained a bit of momentum at this point. In yeah, because I thought part two was... I tell you what, and I said this to Anthony is, it's hard, part it's one, hard you're work. sort of breezing through it, you're into it, you can pick it, yeah. you can get through to it. It's like swimming through a nice swimming pool. Part two, it's like somebody's dropped you in treacle. <laughs> yeah, you've it's got... very... The change of the cadence of the book's very noticeable, I think. It got quite dense, and we did talk about that, didn't we? Yeah. But, but then you back it. But I'm not, and, and and therefore I didn't like part two. But actually, when I reflected on part two, having I did slept like it. on it now and having yeah. come back to do the show on it, particularly those latter chapters of part two, actually I've enjoyed them more than more than I did when well, I was under pressure to read it, the book before we recorded the show. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so so chapter nine is called creating a preference. Yeah. Um, and you know, his opening open lines, by the way, in all the chapters is always excellent. We often forget that the act of selling is about creating a preference to work with us instead of our competitor. Yeah. Bloody well said that, man. Yeah. I think a lot of people we we interview forget that. Well, it's a big... Your fr- job is a salesperson. You are there to influence that prospect in your direction. Full stop, that's it. I, I often say you are in the business of persuading somebody to do something they might not ordinarily have considered Correct. doing. Correct. That's, and I the, think that's what to, we get paid for. You've got for. to read this chapter with that ringing through your mind. That's what we get paid for, is to persuade the customer to do something he might not have thought of doing on his own if you'd left him to it on the internet. Correct. It's to persuade people. Correct. To Absolutely. And, and I think then the, the whole tenor of the chapter is very well set. And his next subheading is Mindshare and being a 52% SME. Yes. Absolutely. So what he talks about here is... He basically says, quote unquote, you cannot be a trusted advisor if you have no advice. Yeah, I underline that, yeah. Um, Absolutely right. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit earlier on in the book. It's a pet thing for me, which is there's personal self-development that we do in different areas of our work. There is the personal self-development that you do that makes you fit enough to do the job, sharp enough to do the job, presentable enough to do the job. There's the personal self-development that you do that means you've got the technical skills to be able to persuade somebody, the technical skills to listen to somebody, the technical skills to understand the different stakeholders in the environment. But actually, often the thing that I sometimes find people are truly lacking is this desire to go a level further than the next guy in terms of understanding something about the market that others don't. Yes, and then transferring that into what that means for into their prospects. Into the conversation with the client. What does that actually mean? And a lot of that, Mike, I'm really sorry to say, it's just down to hunger and desire. Hunger and desire to learn and win. Let's get it right hunger with this, and br- this Brexit debacle. Whatever ends up happening with it all, some people will profit and some people will lose. Yes, and some can, and some salespeople were going to get badly found out. Well, it's not so much that. Some salespeople will look at... This whole Brexit thing, they might sell warehouse management software, and they're that they're then going to say, well, actually, currently you're storing a load of stock for post Brexit not happening. But then actually, what does that mean when Brexit, you know, dissipates into nothing? And they're going to go down that route and then offer their advice. Somebody is going to 
is going to benefit out of that, aren't they? Yeah. Because they're going to give the client something. They're going to say something. They're, they're going to have an angle that's smarter than everybody else's angle. Correct. He then talks about irrelevance avoid, uh, avoidance. I, I do like this whole point he talks about getting... So it, what he's basically saying, if you go out to... An, if, you, if you start a job and you go to all your meetings with your pre-sales guy, and after every meeting you sit down with your pre-sales guy and say... You said this, you said that, you said this, you said that, you said this, you said that, you said this, you said that. By the end of it, you'll become a subject matter expert within about six or seven calls. Yeah, yeah. And the point he's talking about is being what he calls a 52% subject matter expert, i.e. having a little bit more knowledge than the client that you're selling to. Yeah. That makes you a subject matter expert in that space. And then he, and then it gets into uh, tying your solutions to better results and some of these other intangibles that he talks about. Um, he talks, you know, he gets into likability and rapport. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He says, imagine this scenario. There is one salesperson you like. You can easily see working with them on a daily basis, so much so that you would hire them to be on your team if that were possible. A salesperson from another company is smart, but you wouldn't want to work with them every day. If you have a choice of doing business with somebody who is likable and with whom you have rapport, all other, all other things being equal, you choose that person to work with. Yes, but I do think people rely on likability and rapport too much. I think, well, it's interesting because I think likability and rapport are different. I think people don't know the difference between the two. And they rely, so often when you know, we're interviewing... You've being smiley and nice. That's yeah. likable, but that's not rapport. Oh, you, you like shooting, I like shooting. Yeah, that's not rapport. No, it's poor rapport. But what I do often find is a lot of salespeople rely overly heavily on their quote-unquote ability to build a relationship well, it, well, as the reason why customers buy off them. And he does talk well, about that. Having a pleasant yeah. personality is one thing. Being a people pleaser is another. Yeah. And detrimental to your success. Yes, absolutely. Because how can you then proffer advice? And he's absolutely right about that. Yeah, and then he talks about, for example, just business acumen, which he's kind of already talked about, but it, it, it's in, it, his point is right. You, you know, go out, study the market you're in. You've got to become... You've got to be more knowledgeable than the guy that, that, that's, that's after you. Absolutely. Um, I thought this was interesting about caring. <laughs> Go on. I think that's really important. Well, why have we changed our business model? We changed our business model because we felt that a lot of the people that worked for us didn't care one iota about the clients and the candidates. Yeah, that's part of it, but I think it's a, it's a bigger statement than that. There, there's something about uh, integrity... There's something written on LinkedIn about integrity is what you're doing when people aren't looking or something like that. Yeah. And I think the same is true with caring, isn't it? If you actually act with your clients and candidates, best interest at heart, and you give them advice, I'll tell you, what, I'll tell you who's an absolute shocker at this, Johnny, is you. Because you fall out with the clients and candidates because you tell them the truth. And then what happens is... <laughs> but what happens is... Yeah, six months honest, later, six months, no, 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 but what happens much. is six months later they phone you up. Because I was the only guy that told them the truth. Yes. At the time, they hate it. Yeah. And actually, so Tom, who used to it work It happens here, a lot less to us now, because I do it in a nicer way than I used to. But I think clients mistake it. And it's interesting, we had a guy who worked, worked for us called Tom for a short period of time, um, and I see him in the gym every sort of Saturday. You gave him such a hard time about his diary. Yeah. But do you know what he does now? He fills his diary in every Correct. day. Correct. And every time I see him at the gym on Saturday, I say, how's it going? And he goes... Yeah, not bad. God, keep me in the phone, Johnny, and tell him I film a diary. And <laughs> I said, you should do. He doesn't need to. He doesn't work for us but, anymore. But that's the point about caring, isn't it? Caring is saying to your client, listen, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client, your website's garbage. 
Yeah. That's why you're not hiring people. Yeah. Listen, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client, you know. Do you, do you want to, that, correct. It's having, That's what it's about. It's but, about but with caring comes nuts. Yes, it does. It comes a bit of bravery as well. Because you've got to be brave to care. You have, yes. Because if you really care, you've got to be prepared to tell the truth. Yes, and, and the truth that is the truth, not just a version of the truth that suits you. Yes. The actual real truth. And so many people are mealy-mouthed and, yes. they, and they obfuscate at that. But let's get it right. If there's four salesmen in it, four salesmen going for the same deal, salesman one is mealy-mouthed and he tells the clients what he wants to hear. Salesman two says, well, actually, I think you've got the following problems, Mr. Client. Yes. And, there, gonna, and there is follows. Who's he going to go with? I'd like to think that customers will go with the guy that actually was the trusted advisor, the one that told them what they I, might I, not want to hear. I, I think, you know, as a five-bar gate, you would find that with the case. The I'd like thing, to think so. I like this. He says, under presence, that he talks about presence, and he says, I once had a prospective client say to me, I can't believe you drove all the way here to see me. You didn't need to do that. And and do you know what? I think you do. Yeah. I think you do. I Very think. tempting to do conference calls and video calls at the moment. I've said to a few clients over the years, but you've got to understand I really care about you. And because they're mainly men and I'm sat opposite them, they think that's a bit weird. P- people laugh because I, I tell them I love them all yeah, the time. Yeah, me too, 100%. I? But I think that's important. And Anna Reno is absolutely right. And he talks about these different things, likability and rapport. He's right. Well, Business that whole acumen, thing about... Right. The, the whole, the whole right. thing about presence. Attitude, presence, resourcefulness. He's right. That whole thing about presence, I think, is really powerful. You know, for us... I, I just can qualify a client with that. I'd like to meet you. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. Yeah, great. Okay. That's because you don't want to meet eight of the other recruiters you're working with, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Then the next point he goes is resourcefulness. He says, I was once speaking to a group of former special, or special force soldiers. One of them used an acronym with which I was unfamiliar. As they talked about a tough problem, one gentleman said to the other, FITFO. I asked what FITFO, the ex-spec-op soldier repeated, uh, not understanding what I asked again. He said, what's fit for? Only to receive the same reply and a smile. The soldier said, figure it the fuck out. (laughs) He's right though, isn't he? Yeah. You know, I met a marketing agency a while ago um, and and he just came up with this idea where I thought, that's a good idea. Came up with something. An angle. For for us to use, and I thought, that's a good idea. Sharp. But he'd listened to me. He'd thought about our business. He'd thought about what he was doing. And then he showed his resource to me. And I thought, that's a good idea. I like that. Right. I'm in. So that's that's those three chapters. Yes. I'll tell you what I would say about this book. It took a real dip for me in part two. Unfairly so on Can, can I point out that the reason why you say it take, took a dip is because the content gets dense. Just changes the cadence of it. Yeah, it just com- hits you too The hard. content gets dense and requires thought. Um, I think I said it last week which was, I won't recommend this as a Kindle purchase. No, I think luckily for you and I, the format of sitting down and actually taking notes. Yeah. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is a book that you either, uh, nobody's going to like me for saying this, either download the PDF DRM free and make notes on it with your iPad, but don't do that. Or, uh, get out, I would say go out, buy the hardback and get pen and a highlighter. Yeah, but I don't actually cost. Because you bought it, but is it worth the money? Yeah. I can't remember. I've no idea. Some, and, and I've got to say, having spent some time talking to Anthony... What price your personal self-development? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd yeah, agree you with can't that. put price on it. You know, it's the same cost around the drinks in the pub with your mates, isn't it? It's less than two pints, that. 
Anyway. So, uh, enjoying it. So we've got one more show to go, and then we will release the show in which Anthony came on the show and talked about the book, which, like I say, was brilliant. Um, and I'm really excited about putting that content out there. Next week, we're going to talk about Chapter 10, Becoming Trusted Advisor and Consultative Salesperson, which, hey, great topic. Chapter 11, Developing an Executive Presence. Yeah, let's not give it away, because we've obviously read it. Uh, and then I think there's, I can't remember what Chapter 12 was, Parting Shot, with some other bits. So we'll wrap up next week, and we will And then the see, week after. We'll have Anthony on the show. Perfect. Great. And then what book, Lauren, are we doing next? So the book we're going to be doing in two or three weeks' time, we will be starting as a book called The Perfect Close by James, by James Muir. And James will be coming on the show. Cool. So do start ordering that now. Uh, I'm going to actually go off and order a couple of copies when we finish the show whilst we're still in social media content creation mode. Uh, and start reading it now so I can get through it ahead of the game. But thank you very much for listening and watching today. Goodbye.